Well, we haven't got uh, too many minor prophets to go. I think we've got about, uh, including today, three more. <laughs> cheering that it's coming to an end or cheering that we've still got three to go? <laughs> and today we're looking at Obadiah. This is the shortest book in the Old Testament. Um, and so if you haven't read it, we're going to read the whole book today because it's only 21 verses. Obadiah, if you can't find it, it's just after Amos. If you can't find Amos, learn your Bible. Obadiah. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We've heard a report from the Lord and an envoy has been sent among the nations saying, Arise and let us go, go against her for battle. Behold, I'll make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You were you who live in the clefts in the rock, in the loftiness of the, your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I'll bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers by night, how will you, oh, how will you will be ruined? Would they not steal only until they had enough? If great gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? Oh, how Esau will be ransacked in his hidden treasures, searched out. All the men allied with you will send you forth to the border, and the, peace, the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There is, excuse me, there is no understanding in him. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau? Then your mighty men will be dismayed in Teman so that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. Because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and will be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were there as one of them. Do not gloat over your brother's today, uh, day, the day of his misfortune, and do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in their destruction. Yes, do not boast in their day in their, of their distress. Do not enter the gate of the people in the day of their disaster. Yes, you, do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster, and do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the fork in the road to cut down their fugitives. Do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. For the day of the Lord draws near on the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they'd never existed. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape and it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Then the house of Jacob will be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame. And the house of Esau will be a stubble. And they will set them on fire and consume them so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Then those of the Negev will possess the mountain of Esau and those of the Shephelah, the Philistine plain, also possess the territory of Ephraim, the territory of Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. And the exiles of this host of the sons of Israel who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Zephared will possess the cities of the Negev. The deliverers will ascend, mountains, uh, will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau and the kingdoms will be the Lord's. There you go, I'll sit down now, you know what it's all about. 
Obadiah is thought by most to be one of the first of the Old Testament prophets. He was the first one before Isaiah, before Ezekiel, before all of that lot. He was the first. And he was thought to be prophesying around 845 BC. Although some may suggest, do suggest that he may have been as late as 578 BC. But the general consensus is that he was early, 845 BC. And a stream of other prophets arose after him, calling the nation of Israel back to God, as well as prophesying concerning the surrounding nations. And at just 21 verses, it is the shortest book in the Old Testament. And the name Obadiah means worshipper of God or servant of God. And we know virtually nothing about him from the text, not even his father's name. Remember last week, um, as we looked at Zephaniah, we knew his grandfather and his great-grandfather's name. In this case, we know nothing about Obadiah, except that he had some vision and that he prophesied out of it. And the prophecy has three themes. Judgment against Edom, judgment against the nations, and blessing for Israel. And we'll consider those three themes as we go through today. So judgment against Edom. Well, why Edom? Well, primarily because Edom were descended from Esau. And the relationship between Israel and Edom had always been a little fraught. It had its roots in the relationship between Jacob and Esau, the sons of Isaac. And you remember the story of how these two were twins. But Esau was born first, with Jacob hanging on to his heel. Do you remember that? And as they were growing up, that must have been a difficult delivery. But anyway, as they were growing up, Esau was favoured by his father. Always a mistake to give favouritism to one child or the other. But Jacob was a mummy's boy. Got any of those in the house today? Esau, of course, had traded his birthright to Jacob for a pot of lentils and had thereby despised it. Nevertheless, when they came of age and Isaac wanted to pass his blessing on to, on to Esau, he was, Esau was ready to go out hunting to bring some game back for his father in order to, to give, cook him a nice meal and from there to gain an inheritance, to get the blessing, as Sean was talking about blessing, Isaac was going to lay his hands on Esau and bless him, and the blessing once given could not be retracted. But fortunately for Jacob, he had a tricksy mother. She was able to help him cheat Esau out of his inheritance. After which, of course, Jacob fled for 20 years. And when he returned, having fled with nothing, and having been tricked himself by Laban, he actually ended up coming back with flocks, two wives, two concubines, and 11 children. Not bad return for nothing, is it? (laughs) I won't go there. (laughs) And then when he got back, he, he was reconciled with Esau, although they agreed to live in different places. Esau lived on the east bank of the River Jordan, And Jacob lived on the west bank of the River Jordan. Now, the area where Esau settled was around Mount Seir, which is in the southern part of of modern-day Jordan. And there were two major cities in Edom. One was Bosra, and the other was named Sela, but it's known today as Petra. Anyone seen um, the uh, third of the Indiana Jones films, The Last Crusade? 
Put your hand up. Come on, confess. Confess this morning. Confession is good for the soul. You remember they end up in the place where the chalice is? It, with that rock and the, 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 the carvings in the rock, the building shaped into it? Well, that's Petra. That's where this Edom was. That's where Esau and his people were living. And actually, they, they built whole um, cities built into the rock on the hills, on the mountains around Seir. And that was their defense. That was their protection. And that's what Obadiah refers to in verse 3. You live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling places. You say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? In other words, they built these fortresses and they thought they were impregnable and nobody could defeat them because they built them into the rocks, into the mountains. And they were safe and they were secure. That's what Obadiah is referring to. The next time after that original encounter with Jacob and Esau that we encounter Edom, or the descendants of Esau, is in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 1 to 7. And you remember the story, the people of Israel have come out of Egypt and they've been in the wilderness for 40 years, and now they're moving towards the land, and they're gradually going to the place where they're going to move to conquer the land. And they come to Edom, they come to this area. Um, And in in Deuteronomy 2, 1 to 7, it tells us that they were told by God not to go through Edom because they are, relate, uh, they are a related nation and God was not planning to give Israel any of the ten- territory that he had allotted to Edom. It was theirs because of, the, of Esau, because they were related. And the detail of this same encounter given to us in Numbers 20 tells us that at that point the Edomites came out with an army against Israel to ensure they didn't pass through that territory. So it wasn't just that God told them not to go through. The Edomites were pretty determined that they weren't going to go through as well. And so there was a little bit of conflict even before Israel moved back into the land. And then during the reign of David, he actually conquered the Edomite territory and it became a satellite state, a vassal state. He exercised hegemony over it. And Edom came under David's authority and remained under his authority until the time of Jehoram. So for for about 200 years, 150, 200 years, Edom was under Israel. Um, And it was at the time when Edom rebelled against Israel and went independent again, that's exactly the same time that Obadiah was prophesying. And from the point on, where they released themselves from under the dominance of the Israelite kings, from that time onwards, whenever anyone attacked Judah... Edom would join in with them. And it's this that Obadiah is prophesying. If anyone comes against Jerusalem, Edom was there supporting them with their archers, with their men. They were up with them. They were going to help destroy the Israelites, the people of Judah. They were there. They were part of it. And indeed, when Babylon later overran Judah in um, 605-604 BC, Edom assisted them. And Obadiah prophesied exactly what was going to happen. They betrayed to the Babylonians any Israelites who fled. So if an Israelite fled to Edom, Edom would take them and give them back to the Babylonians who would then either kill them or enslave them. And they also assisted the Babylonians in looting the city of Jerusalem. And so at the heart of Obadiah's prophecy against Edom is this, that in spite of the fact that they were brothers of Israel, that they were descended from Abraham, and sons of Isaac, 
in spite of the fact that they were a brother nation to Israel, they acted towards them like the worst of enemies. It's because of their actions towards the people of God that they have merited a future judgment that will lead to their future destruction. And that's exactly what happened over the centuries that followed Obadiah's prophecies. Because they didn't act as a brother nation, they were judged and pretty much wiped out. Now in verse 15 to 18 of this prophecy, Obadiah extends the judgment of Edom as part of the judgment of the nations that would follow. And the basis of the judgment of the nations is also the same as that for Edom. It's based on how they treated the people of God. And just as Edom was being judged for its treatment of Israel, so the nations ultimately will be judged on the same basis. In Matthew 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats, Jesus picks up this theme. This passage, the parable of the sheep and the goats, you remember, remember the story where Jesus says, um, the, what you did for the least of these, my brethren, you did for me. That's a direct, if you look at the text before that, it says it's about the judgment of the nations. It's not about individual judgment. It's about the judgment of the nations that will happen at the end times. And Jesus says, this, no, in this passage, it's to do with the judgment of the, not the judgment of the righteous and the unrighteous per se. Rather, it's a specific judgment concerning how the nations have treated who? Jesus says, these brothers of mine. We have three options concerning what he means by that. Either it's the physical brothers of Jesus, the Jews, the spiritual brothers of Jesus, the church, or those whom Jesus identifies as brothers, i.e. the downtrodden, the hungry, thirsty, strangers, naked, sick and imprisoned. And in one sense, all of these are true. Jesus will judge on the basis of how we deal with, with others. But specifically, out of Obadiah's prophesy, prophecy, the one, the one option of those three that's most consistent with scripture, and in other scriptures as well, is that the nations, all of the nations will be judged in the end times on how they've treated the Jews. That's the basis of it. Now that makes a serious challenge, doesn't it, to the way we, we consider Israel. It doesn't mean we justify everything that the state of Israel does, but God still loves the people because of Abraham. And our attitude and our response to them as a nation and as nations will determine how God sees us at the end times. Serious, isn't it? And that's exactly what Obadiah is saying in this prophecy. It's not simply about how we've treated or mistreated the Jews, but also how they've been neglected over the years. But the book then ends with a specific blessing on Israel, a blessing of regathering once more as many of the other prophecies do. It speaks of restoration of Israel to the land. And as I said last week, we've seen that over the last 70 years or so. And ultimately, it says, it concludes, the kingdom will be the Lord's. And actually, it's all about Jesus. The kingdom will be the Lord's. It will be his. So what can we learn from this book? We've gone through a bit of history. We've gone through a bit of biblical, biblical narrative. But what is it we can draw out from this book today? Well, the key theme in this book is about one brother acting appropriately towards another brother. 
And this is summed up in verse 12. Let's just return to verse 12. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. What is our attitude towards our brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus? Is it positive or negative? And I'm not just talking about people in our own church, although that applies, but people in other churches. They may meet in a different place. They may not worship in the same way as we do. They may not see eye to eye with us theologically or on a range of issues. But if they are our brothers and sisters, we need to maintain a positive attitude towards them. Jesus himself taught us in John 13, 35, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. How? If you love one another. It's our attitude towards one another that marks us out as disciples and which is a testimony to the world of who we are. Over the centuries, the church has been anything but loving towards one another. We've fallen out, separated and divided, fought and even burned each other at the stake. We've not exactly covered ourselves in glory in this, have we? But in this coming week, we have an opportunity to stand with with our brothers and sisters from other traditions. In an act of unity in this town. As together we make known the life of God, each in our own way. This is a marvellous opportunity for the town, but also for the church in the town, perhaps to repair some of the historical divisions and to present a united front to all who look on. It is a shame that two churches in the town have chosen not to take part. But nevertheless, Psalm 133 tells us clearly that where there is unity, there is blessing. So may it be this week that where the church is united, where we do things together, where we stand together, where we proclaim our brotherhood, that God will release a blessing upon this town this week. Coming back to our own situation, is there anyone in the body with whom you're not in unity? Is there anyone with whom there is a relationship issue? Have you criticised somebody, spoken negatively about them to someone else? It's time to get it sorted. The enemy is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In other words, he's looking for anywhere where he can get in between us to mar or destroy our relationships. He knows that our strength is in our unity. But if a house is divided against itself, that house will not stand. The enemy will look for every crack or upset or division in our relationships and seek to exploit it in order to weaken us. And we have a choice. When someone or something upsets us, we can sit on it and let it fester, or we can deal with it through forgiveness and reconciliation. It may be that we can do that just between ourselves and God, or we may need to put something right with the individual or the person that we have gossiped to about that individual. Either way, we need to deal with these things, not for our sakes alone, but for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of the body of Christ. The consequence of not dealing with relational issues in the body of Christ is that we weaken ourselves, we weaken the body, and we undermine our witness. However, if we do deal with 
we deal with them. We strengthen the body. And we also... Um, Keep ourselves from becoming bitter and critical, which is self-destructive. Holding on to grudges and upsets and not dealing with issues and remaining out of fellowship with one another or with another brother or sister are all contrary to kingdom behavior. They are the ways of the world and not of the kingdom. And we need to make a choice to separate ourselves from the ways of the world so that we can glorify Jesus. I just want to give three illustrations of unity. In a Peanuts cartoon, everyone familiar with Peanuts? Lucy demanded that Linus change TV channels, threatening him with her fist if he didn't. Linus says, what makes you think you can walk right in here and take over? These five fingers, says Lucy. Individually, they're nothing, but when I curl them together like this into a single unit... They form a weapon that is terrible to behold. Which channel do you want? Asks Lucy, Linus. Turning away, he looks at his fingers and says, Why can't you guys get organised like that? (laughs) When we're together, we're stronger than when we're apart. And we're a weapon in the hand of God that can be used to do much damage against the enemy. Second illustration. Snowflakes are one of nature's most fragile things, but just look at what they can do when they stick together. Once more, when we're together, even the weakest, the most fragile of us can be part of that vast army that can cause havoc. The last one. Tonto and the Lone Ranger. We're riding through a canyon together when all of a sudden both sides were filled with Native American warriors on horses dressed for battle. The lone ranger turns to Tonto and says, what are we going to do? And Tonto replies, what's with this wee pale face? (laughs) When the rubber hits the road, are we really united with this body? That's the message. And the message of Obadiah is that brothers should treat each other as brothers. And we too have responsibility to do the same in the body of Christ. And I appeal to you as a fellow brother, be united with one another. Sort out differences. And let's move on in the strength that the Lord provides. Amen.